Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from May 2015, Dr. Jennifer Lin, a dermatologist with Dana-Farber's Melanoma Treatment Center, discusses prevention tips and the latest treatment options and research for melanoma. Melanie Graham from Dana-Farber's Communications Department joins her for the conversation. So there's three common skin cancers basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and melanoma. There are other more rare types as well. The main difference is that melanoma has a much higher mortality. So if you look at the numbers of non-melanoma skin cancer, the basal cells and the squamous cells, they account for approximately 3.5 million diagnoses in the U.S., but only approximately 2,000 deaths, whereas melanoma incidence is currently around 74,000, Um, and accounts for about 10,000 deaths per year in the U.S. Um, The cell type from which melanoma comes from is also completely different. The cell it arises from is the melanocyte, which gives color to our skin, our hair, our eyes, and uh, these are the main differences. So in general, melanoma, um, does it affect men more than women, or is there like certain populations that it'll affect more? There are certain high-risk groups that we look at. Um, and these are done in large epidemiological studies. Uh, some of the groups we're concerned about are um, Caucasian men over 65. So studies have shown, especially even the last 50 years, th- this, uh, this group has more mortality from their melanoma. For some reason, their melanomas are being diagnosed later, or they have more aggressive tumors, um, and so more of them are dying from it. The other group that we're really concerned about is our 20 to 30-year-olds. So there's also been in the last 50 years, since the 1970s, approximately um, an eight-fold increase in young women with melanoma. At the same time, there's also been an increase in melanoma in young men, um, just a a less amount, about four times more. So uh, in terms of symptoms, what should uh, people be looking for uh, when they're checking themselves for uh, melanoma or skin cancer signs? Yeah, so we're sort of lucky in some ways in the skin that we can actually see what's going on. Um, And so I think as a dermatologist, we really believe we have an opportunity to catch a melanoma early. I often will tell my patients, you know, if I could look at your colon every day, I'm sure I'd be removing lots of stuff from your colon as well. So by far, the most common finding will be a changing mole. So it might be a mole that's growing rapidly, spreading out in its edges. Oftentimes, it will have multiple colors in the lesion. Sometimes, it will develop a bump in the middle. And so the ABCDs that we go by still applies, A being for asymmetry, if you can't um, fold the mole in half so it looks uneven. B is if the border is irregular, so it can have a scalloped edge. It might have lost color at the edge. C, again, for color, so multiple colors in one lesion. And finally, D for diameter, if it's uh, a very large mole. And added in, and I really do want to emphasize that E stands for evolution or change. And that is probably the most important thing. Occasionally, it will turn itchy and red as a sign that things are changing inside the mole and turning into a melanoma. And there is a subset of melanoma that is pink, so it doesn't have any color at all. So if there is something growing fast on your skin, then it's something we want to hear about. So you touched on this a little bit before when you were talking about some of the more common populations that mm-hmm. might be um, developing melanoma. Are there certain people who are more at risk for it than others, and who would they be? Right. So again, 
even though we're in the, in the era of genomics, a lot of the risk types for melanoma we can see. Um, and still the main risk factor is going to be somebody who's really fair. There is a gene that controls your hair color and your skin color, and when it's not working, you have someone with red hair, blue eyes, and freckly skin. But there's many more variations of that gene leading to blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, we also see people with dark hair, dark eyes, but very pale, freckly skin. Technically, if you can't withstand the sun and you burn easily, you are at higher risk. That being said, any skin type can get melanoma. It's just a lot less common. And in the darker, the areas that get melanoma are not in sun-exposed sites, so they can get it on their nails, on the bottoms of their feet. Uh, this is a question that we get a lot sometimes from parents. Mm. Um, can children also develop melanoma? Is it something that only affects adults? Right, so children can get melanoma. It's very rare. Um, for instance, one study showed in the last 10 years about 1,100 cases. And the good news about childhood melanoma, which was recently published, is that the rate has been decreasing. In 2000 to 2010, there was about 11% decrease in the incidence of melanoma. So we hope that some of the changes in sun protection now occurring at a very young age we are finally starting to see the effects of it. Do the symptoms vary between children and adults? No, they're similar. So again, it would primarily be a changing mole, and the genetics of a childhood melanoma are similar to in adults. It's just these are the people off the curve, so they're just much more rare in incidence. For, from a parent's point of view, should you check your kids often? Should you just bring it up with the pediatrician? How can you make sure that they're screened properly? So if there's a family history of melanoma, I think kids could be checked once a year. Um, the teenage year is actually the 15 to 19 year olds are the, the most likely to develop melanoma. Um, and oftentimes that's the group we have the hardest time screening. So I think early education, which is happening now, so kids now know if they're going to camp, they should bring their sunscreen and their hats that type of enforcement um, will lead to long-term healthy practices. So I think enforcing early, in terms of checking, no more than once a year. I mean, if a parent is aware of their child developing lots of moles, I think that's reasonable to have your pediatrician take a look. And if there's something called atypical moles, then that usually will be referred to a pediatric dermatologist. This is kind of on the same subject in terms of risk factors. Does the type of skin somebody has, so if somebody has dry skin, oily skin, does that play into risk at all, or is that just So that was a really interesting question. There's been no evidence suggesting that if, if you have more eczema, for instance, that your risk of melanoma changes. So at this point, we don't believe that there's any influence at all on your skin type, in terms of oily versus dry skin type. Okay. So you uh, kind of, again, you touched on this a little bit before when we were talking about risk factors, but uh, genes and um, whether melanoma can actually be genetic. Is there genetic risk and when should somebody seek testing? Is testing to be, you know, to... So technically, all cancers are genetic. You know, what we understand from why a cell will grow out of control is a series of mutations that the cell gets essentially, it takes a hit, it takes multiple mutations for a cell to develop the ability to grow out of the control of your immune system. So technically all melanoma is genetic um, and now we increasingly are, we know about the types of mutations in our cancers and the newest set of medications and drug therapies are targeting specific mutations. 
But to answer your question about familial risk, it's actually not so common for melanoma. So approximately, depending on the study, 5 to 14% of melanoma's familial melanoma, meaning that there is a mutation carried through the family that predisposes individuals to melanoma. Um, majority of melanoma is sporadic. Okay, so now we're just going to go into talking a little bit more about screening and prevention when you're screening yourself. So what are some of the most common types, uh, areas where you would find melanoma? Um, for men and women, is there certain places that we should be checking more than others? Right, so for men, it's still overwhelming, overwhelmingly the trunk. So 50% of their melanomas arise in this area. And for men, the back is a, very is a big hot spot, and that's something that's hard for them to check on their own. For women, um, in the past, it's always been the legs that, that have been the highest risk area. But more recently, it looks like melanoma on the trunk of a woman is also quite common. Um, and this one we just we got in from a viewer. Um, does alcohol increase the risk for melanoma? I know we sometimes get questions about alcohol in the relation to certain types of cancer, but melanoma specifically. Yeah, so that's happening. a good question. There was some recent studies on this, and um, there is a modest but significant risk um, of melanoma for people who drink alcohol. So they looked at both um, light drinkers and moderate drinkers. Um, and I believe moderate drinker was about two drinks per day. But the risk is small, so um, you know, at this point it's unclear whether there are other risk factors that are bigger than alcohol, but there is um, now a documented modest and, but significant risk. Does the type of alcohol make a difference? Not, like yeah. Well, so the one thing maybe we can take away is that this risk seemed to occur primarily in North America. Um, and it was not seen in other countries. So that may say something about type of alcohol, but it's not clear yet. Okay. Uh, so we actually just got a question in uh, from a viewer um, about sunblock. Um, do you have any recommendations of the best type of sunblock to use on your face? So should it be different from what you use elsewhere on your body? Right, so um, there was a recent consumer report on sunscreen that a lot of my patients have been asking me about, and it was great in the sense that they actually tested the sunscreen um, the way it should be tested, which is measuring how much blockage of UV um, occurs with the sunscreen. And one of the disappointing findings was that some of them, if you go in the water, really lose their ability. So um, again, we emphasize a minimum of an SPF 30, um, and the higher numbers are, are supposed to last longer. And that those numbers were the ones that really didn't seem to be that accurate. Bottom line is, as a dermatologist, we tell you to reapply every few hours because we know that things wash off and sweat off, um, and that way you can ensure that the sunscreen you're using is working at a maximal effect. Sunscreens for the face, I think the big difference is going to play out is that you want to block not only UVB but UVA, and currently the FDA writes this as broad spectrum but it doesn't specifically measure against UVA, whereas Europe has a standard for measuring against UVA. I don't typically like to call out specific brand names, but you know some ingredients, I, I guess I can say, uh, La Roche-Posay has an ingredient called Mixoral, which will extend the life of your UVA blockers. Neutrogena has something called Helioplex, which also extends the life of their UVA blockers. 
If you use titanium and zinc oxide, you have to remember that you have to put it on pretty thickly because it reflects the light. So you want to use at least um, a shot glass full of sunscreen for your exposed areas. Um, so this means your face, the backs of your hands, anything that will be exposed to the sun. Uh, so going back to the SPF question, this right. is one we get a lot. Uh, there isn't a different difference between them, it's just how long they last or how long you can wear them before you need to reapply? Right. So. Um, in some ways, the SPF is easier to think about as a time length. So the longer, the higher the number, the longer it's supposed to protect you for. But if you put it on at baseline, it's offering about the same amount of protection. It just, the sunscreen gets used up as soon as you step into the sun. I still feel that in the summertime, if you know you're going to be out there for long hours to go higher, um, because in theory they should be lasting longer, and I still ask that you reapply every few hours, even on an SPF 100 in the case that you were in the water or you were running and sweating and therefore need to reapply. Uh, and this is another question that we, that we got in about sunscreen. Uh, is it okay for melanoma patients to use sunscreen? So after they've been diagnosed or during treatment, is it okay for them to use it as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think there have been um, consumer reports suggesting that some of the chemical ingredients are um, actually harmful. I haven't seen any good evidence on that at all. Um, I can understand that we have a large number of patients who prefer to avoid anything sort of chemical related. And if that is their sort of belief, then I usually direct them towards the titanium products because these are inert and they really work just by reflecting off the sun. So if, if that sort of safety is important to a patient, there is a way of using sunscreen and using a type that's not a chemical-based sunscreen. So I want to start talking a little bit about treatment. Hmm. Um, just in general, can you talk a little bit about uh, what types of therapies are used to treat melanoma, different treatments depending on you know, the patient and diagnosis? Right, so um, in early stage melanomas, which is the majority of melanomas that are getting diagnosed, surgery is the primary treatment. So again, even though the diagnosis of melanoma is so scary, if you look at all melanomas, the five-year survival rate is around 91%, which is excellent. The subset that don't do well are people who are diagnosed with late-stage melanoma. For instance, stage four melanoma, there's a 30% five-year survival. So if you're a stage one melanoma, which is the majority of our diagnoses, chances are when you do the surgery, your, your therapy is done and do is monitor you to make sure you don't get another melanoma. A lot of the exciting therapies right now revolve around stage four melanoma. So prior to 2011, the last time we had an FDA-approved drug for melanoma was 1998, uh, IL-2. Since 2011, five new treatments have been FDA-approved, and there are several more in the pipeline. So this has really been a renaissance for uh, melanoma treatments. The two big classes of melanoma treatments are one, target your specific mutation. So if you have, for instance, BRAF, V600E mutation, then you can respond to a class of drugs that target that mutation specifically. And what we're learning about mutations in cancer is that you need to have more than one drug at the same time to really trap the melanoma from growing. The other class are immunotherapies. And this has, again, revolutionized how we treat cancer in general. So it's been long known that if you can boost your immune system, you would hope that your immune system would figure out how to 
take care of the cancer, trap the cancer, destroy the cancer on its own. But it hasn't been that successful. All the old vaccine trials, about 10 to 15 percent would respond. So it turns out the tumor is really smart and has figured out how to block the immune system from recognizing it. And a lot of the research actually was done here at Dana-Farber. So when you lift the brakes off um, of the immune system, you suddenly have all your immune system flooding and, and um, uh, recognizing that the cancer is there. So the response rates now that we're getting, um, for instance, for PD-1 inhibitors are around 30%. And in an early trial of a combination therapy of a CTLA-4 inhibitor and a PD-1 inhibitor, it's a 60% response rate. So, I mean, it's just an incredible time to be able to offer to patients with metastatic disease an opportunity. Um, so you talked a little bit about the immunotherapies, and I know those are kind of the newer ones that we've been talking about a lot in the news lately. Right. Um, is there anything else that's kind of coming down the pipeline that's new and exciting in terms of treatment for melanoma? So I think fine-tuning this group is going to be the next few steps. Fortunately, with these drugs, because you're increasing your immune system, you um, are also increasing autoimmune diseases. Um, and some of these require you being on immunosuppressants. So there's clearly more fine-tuning involved that we only unleash the immune system that recognizes cancer and not other things in your body. Um, I think the other exciting thing is now that we understand how to sort of train your immune system, can we do it at an earlier stage? And so some of these drugs will start being used at earlier stage patients and in general, thinking about how can we have a high-risk patient, how can we train their immune system to take care of the cancer at an earlier stage. In terms of treatment, what are some of the more common side effects that patients see when they're being treated? And I know you mentioned there's different types of treatment, so do they vary? Yeah, so for the immunotherapies, um, again, we're largely seeing autoimmune diseases. The most common one is inflammation of your colon. So this would present as having diarrhea, um, and you requires an hosp a hospital stay in order to give you the immunosuppressants to treat this. Um, rashes can occur. Um, for the targeted therapies, um, uh, joint pain and fever was a common finding. There are some heart associations, so they have to get EKGs while they're on the medication. Eye findings, again, Quite a few skin findings, including um, a secondary cancer, uh, squamous cell cancer, a type of squamous cell cancer that we would monitor the patients for while they were on the medication. But none of them have been to the point where we, we have to take, I mean, our goal is still to treat the patients on the medication. What are some ways that patients can cope with these um, side effects? What do you recommend for some of the more common ones? Is there nutrition? Yeah, unfortunately, there, and I'm sure people will look into this, but not really right now. You really need um, strong immunosuppressants such as prednisone, steroids, um, uh, anti-TNF inhibitors to really control the inflammation. Um, we actually just got this one in uh, from a viewer. Uh, in your experience, uh, what is most effective in helping patients change their sun-seeking or tanning behaviors? Wow, that's a great question. Um, 
unfortunately, you know, when you get the diagnosis, believers and people change then. I think it's much more difficult to help to to educate people um, when they're young um, and when they're relatively healthy because they feel that they feel healthy. Why would it be them? And of course, it isn't until it's them that they second guess what they are doing. Um, so. Public education is really important. I think tailoring it to the individual is really important. So, you know, if I have a patient who's really active, who likes to bike, likes to run, my goal is not to turn them into a hermit, but try to find a way that they can be protected. Tailoring it to a patient's lifestyle is also really important. Avoiding midday sun, you know, doing everything early in the day, late in the day, um, wearing protective clothing instead of sunscreen. Um, sunscreen we just discussed wears off, so if you have an actual physical barrier, that's even better. So, and there are ways around it. You know, you, if, if you're committed, there are definitely ways that you can do what you want to do and still not get extra damage from the sun. Kind of on that same topic, uh, we also get a lot of questions about uh, spray tanning, self-tanning, things like that, um, that people might do in lieu of going outside or going to a tanning salon. Are those safe? Do you recommend those? Or? So, um, I actually recently a patient gave me a very good angle on this that I hadn't thought about, uh, which was by saying that spray tans are okay, I'm actually promoting this idea that looking dark is healthy and that someone walking around with a spray tan, people might not know if they got that from sun or from a spray tan. I, and I hadn't really thought of that angle, and I think that's a, actually an interesting angle that in general, if we continue to promote this idea that looking tan looks healthy, then we're never really training people to not always be in the sun. So I think that's one piece of it, which is sort of embracing our natural skin color. Uh, you will get color if you use sunscreen. I mean, you'll still get a little color regardless. Um, I think the idea is that you're minimizing how much sun you're getting. So in terms of the actual safety of the spray tans, on the skin it's okay, it just sheds off but you shouldn't get that into your lungs, so you should have something like a nose plug uh, if you're getting spray tans. Uh, and on the topic of vitamin D, this is another one that comes mm. up a lot. Uh, people are always really interested in it. I know there's some new research that's come out recently. When it comes to sunscreen, does it interfere at all with the ability, the body's ability to, pro like, to absorb Yes, the exact that? rays that can cause skin cancer are the exact rays that ac activate vitamin D. Um, so if you're using sunscreen, you are blocking vitamin D formation. So we prefer that you supplement vitamin D through either through your diet or through a supplement rather than going in tanning. Of course, this recommendation differs from skin type to skin type. So if you're, if you're a bear, then there's a reason why you shouldn't be getting excessive sun. Um, however, if you're darker skinned and likely to have a lower vitamin D, you know, getting a little from the sun on a regular basis is not the worst thing. So you, you still have to tailor it patient to patient, but ultimately vitamin D is essential for um, bone health. It may be important for overall health, and we do try to get people into normal vitamin D levels. Um, this one also uh, comes in from a viewer. Are there skin products that melanoma patients should avoid? You know, not specifically, no. And again, this is, uh, I think there's a wide range of um, 
appropriate to use chemical products, preservatives, you know, in your Tupperware, in your skin products. So there's, I think there's a whole range within it, but there is nothing out there that specifically increases your risk of melanoma. Um, so we often think of, about sun safety uh, during the summertime. That's the, probably the most common when we'll be pushing it out and hearing PSAs about it. What should people be doing in the wintertime to protect themselves? Great. So um, it is possible still to get a sunburn in the wintertime um, if you're out skiing. So again, if you're going to be up in high altitudes for long periods of time, I do still recommend using some sunscreen on exposed areas. In terms of screening, I also got a question in asking what dermatologists doing when they screen for melanoma? Just look us over and that's it. Uh, are there certain tools or devices that proper screening look like? Right, so right now um, a skin exam is really a head-to-toe visual exam by your provider, be it your primary care doctor or your dermatologist. And more and more people utilize uh, a dermatoscope, which is just a, essentially a magnifying glass with polarized light because changes within a mole are more readily apparent with this device. I would say that that is the current sort of standard of care. Uh, I think for higher risk patients, there are more and more tools coming out. These include um, body mapping programs. Um, there are now more computer-assisted devices that will take an image of a mole and help understand what's going on. We're actually um, interested in working on this to help figure out what are the earliest signs of a mole changing into a melanoma so that we can screen more effectively our high-risk patients. Uh, and this one actually also just came in from a viewer. I'm a melanoma survivor and I have two small boys. Mm -hmm. They go to the dermatologist every year. They use sunscreen, they wear hats and shirts. But is there anything else I can do for them to protect them? Uh, should I give them more vitamin D or other vitamins? Anything else I can do? Um, I don't think there's anything more you can do. I think keeping them healthy, uh, you know, this is again, I think the struggle of the parent where you want them to be able to run outside and get exercise and not get too much sun. You know, I get it that it's a, it's a fine balance. Um, I think so that parents don't feel, uh, I think parents are very hard on themselves. Um, a kid may occasionally get a burn and that's sometimes unavoidable in the type of skin they have. But that, that is the main sort of injury point we are looking for is, is burning. That is the sort of the thing we do want to try to avoid. Um, not to say that they can't ever go out and, and play in the playground. But currently there's no other supplementation, especially in the, in the children group, that is relevant. Okay, so um, I just, I want to end here with uh, some tips for people. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you've got a whole, a whole list of great things people can do to protect themselves. But what are kind of your top three to five tips um, anybody can do to prevent melanoma and skin cancer? Um, so I think, again, the bottom line is it's been documented that ultraviolet radiation causes mutations. And I think, and we have to learn how to live with the sun. I mean, clearly humans have evolved to live with the sun. We gotta live with the sun. So it's really trying to minimize lifetime mutation accrual why in the world would you introduce new mutations to your body purposefully? You know, we're trying to combat something that we naturally have to deal with. Why would you ever purposefully expose yourself to higher uh, ultraviolet rays? Second is to get into routine. So 
a very large Australian study showed that if someone put sunscreen on their face and the backs of their hands on a regular basis, they actually decreased their risk of melanoma uh, in a population that was 50%. Part of this is probably because when people were doing it regularly, they just got in the habit and became more aware. And awareness is a big part of this, is just being aware that, oh, I've been sitting an hour already you know, on the beach. Maybe I should go hide out for a little bit. So something about routine, getting the habit, having a moisturizer with sunscreen on your face when you leave the house is important. A lot of times I hear about people getting trapped and bring my sunscreen, oops, I burn. So it's better just to have it uh, on your way out. Next thing is primary prevention. So full skin exams by yourself or by your partner are very key. So many melanomas are diagnosed by the patient. Um, so that means once a month, and I usually tell people the beginning of the month, so June 1st, July 1st, August 1st is when you do your head to toe exam. You can have a small handheld mirror against a larger one to see your backside or have a partner look at your backside. And it's basically to get a familiarity with what kind of lesions you have on your skin. Patients usually will pick up if something's really odd on their skin. Um, and melanoma changes are usually dramatic. They're odd things that on, appear on your skin. Um, and then finally, you know, in terms of secondary prevention, is there any vitamins? Um, there are many things sort of being looked at, um, none yet in a prospective trial yet. But in terms of what's on the horizon, um, there was a study that showed that aspirin in women over 65 is helpful to prevent melanoma incidence. Again, vitamin D has an been another one that again, seems to be important, but we still don't know yet exactly how much and if it will decrease your risk specifically. And then there was a recent study that showed vitamin B3 or niacinamide uh, in a prospective study helped out with melanoma, but the other skin cancers, so basal cells and squamous cells. So it will be interesting to know further down the line if these types of vitamins can also play a role in melanoma. The most you can do is to you know, have a healthy diet, exercise regularly, all, we know all those things help maintain a healthy immune system, which is clearly important in melanoma. Uh, just a quick follow-up on uh, one of your points for screening. Yeah. Um, is going to a primary care physician sufficient? Should everybody be going to a dermatologist? Or? So majority of people can be screened by a primary care doctor. Um, oftentimes they will be referred if the primary care doctor feels that they have a large number of moles or their family warrants them to be screened um, by a dermatologist. Once we've identified somebody who's at higher risk, I think they usually do fall under uh, dermatology or even specifically melanoma um, doctors just because we see uh, a large number of these pa patients. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Jennifer Lynn of Dana-Farber's Melanoma Treatment Center. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.